it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's AWS Los Angeles Las Vegas section uh, town hall meeting. So we are a great pleasure to have our uh, distinguished speaker, uh, Mr. Dennis Liang uh, here. He's a great expert for um, you know the space uh, satellite. So you'll learn a lot from his long years of experience and try to share the wisdom with you. Uh, before we start the, the program, just a few uh, for logistics. Uh, today, because we actually didn't pay for the cleaning fee, so if you please don't have the food in the room, even water, bottle water, but don't store the trash inside the room. Uh, there is a cafeteria right out there uh, with the red tent, so you're welcome to get coffee or food, um, you know, after the event. Uh, so, uh, so the presentation will start shortly, and it will last around 30 over 12, and you're welcome to uh, stay chat with the speaker. And uh, the other thing is, uh, this meeting is being recorded, as you just heard. The microphone is actually on this very nice TV. Then we highly appreciate uh, Longdale Library. You can see this beautiful room. Uh, it's uh, the, really appreciate their help and the support. And uh, uh, the other thing is that uh, if you are not a, yet a member of AIAA, uh, we have brochure behind it. Please uh, contact us. Contact at AIAA-LALB.org. Or I can look at uh, www.aiwa.org, that's national, or look at www.aiaa-lalb.org for the local chapter. So if you have any questions, oh, my name is Ken. I'm the chapter uh, chapter chair, section chair for the Los Angeles Vegas section. We have over 1,000 members in this area. Overall, AIWA has 30,000 members. So some of you are already members. And actually, next week, Actually, tomorrow morning, I'm going to Las Vegas to support our section booth in the AIAA Ascent Conference, which is the leading uh, conference for space, economy, and technology. So um, our distinguished speaker, Dennis, is uh, uh, not only his very experienced, he formerly worked in Northrop Grumman, uh, satellite operation, and is in the leadership position. Uh, formerly before that, he was also working in the uh, uh, now called the uh, Armstrong, but uh, it should be uh, Dryden, the uh, NASA Research Center, uh, doing hypersonic stuff. And now he's uh, uh, in the Daibashi Consulting. Uh, he's a founding member. He's a founder of this great organization. So we are learned a lot from him. So today you are here from him, and also two weeks from from today in the same. Uh, it is uh, uh, his long years of experience digested, and if you want to. Uh, throw back to the community to help everyone, uh, and uh, please stay in touch with him. And uh, so, uh, without further ado, let's welcome uh, Dennis. All right, thank you very much, Ken. I appreciate it. <laughs> Wonderful introduction there. Um, as Ken has said, my name is Dennis Liang. I've been in this industry for over 24 years in a number of different roles, from technical to management, you know, all the way to even into construction of building a brand new factory. So what we're going to talk about today is really the spacefaring ecosystem. What does it mean? How does that have further ramifications to just about everybody here on the planet, right? In every industry. So when we look at what is an ecosystem, we're all familiar with an ecosystem here on Earth. It's going to be really the same thing. Everything that you interact out there, the planets, um, humans, anything that you go that's related into an environment is part of your ecosystem, right? And one of the important ones is gonna be, what do we build to get us out there? 
What are we going to use to live up there? These are the spacecraft, the satellites, man-made objects that we put into space. Um, we're very familiar with satellites, been around for many, many years. Um, we're now moving more into a reusable spacecraft, so you'll start to see a lot more of that. And then in near future, hopefully we'll start to see more um, space stations that allow, um, besides researchers and government employees on there, that you actually allow regular citizens. And one of the major things that's really driving this is, we have to look at is resources. There's pretty much an infinite amount of resources out there if you really think about the number of planets, the number of asteroids out there, that there's more stuff out there that's ever been mined in history of Earth right now, right? And it can change pretty much the economy of this whole planet. But in addition to that, we also have to look at the legal and regulatory compliance portion of this. Um, over the years, there's hasn't been too much of it, either than just what the governments themselves mandate for them. Um, but they're good at policing themselves, so they don't really have to worry about too much. So when you start to look at the broader picture of companies starting to get up there, companies can do whatever they want as long as they make a profit. So then you have to put a little bit more regulatory compliance on there. But we'll talk a little bit about that later down the line, that you have to strike a balance. Too much, you stifle competition. Too little, you might have accidents and, in and incidents that might actually kill this industry. So. How do we increase our market share in this? Um, a lot of this is you have to adapt or you will be left behind. There's a lot of competitiveness. Everybody has now heard of SpaceX. Um, if you haven't, I'm not sure where you've been. But <laughs> SpaceX has come onto the scene and they've disrupted everything. ULA used to be the big players in the group, right? They used to own everything, monopolize, charge whatever they wanted, you know, made huge profits. Government just paid it. They had no other choice, right? SpaceX came along, pretty much said, hey, we can do it better and cheaper. And they did it, right? And so now ULA is starting to rethink how they're doing stuff. And because of this, you have other companies, right, that starts propping up to get into the small stats, medium stats, different kind of launch vehicles versus just one set of pretty powerful rockets that has to bring up a lot of payloads, right? So now you've got specific rockets that bring up small sats, cube sats, and so on and so forth. So there's this expanding market. Now. And because everything has been brought down to such a cheaper level, that it allows these companies or these organizations to actually put their products into space. So we have to look at this economy because everything is coming down in price. A lot of these other companies that never had the opportunity because you know, most of the most companies in the United States are small to medium sized companies and they do not have hundreds of millions of dollars to do a launch, one launch. So now, because the price is coming down, you have smaller providers coming up with different capacities and payloads, you can see the space economy is going to increase exponentially. Could you mind if you speak to the audience here? 
Oh, your volume will be reduced. Oh, high. my bad. I'll, I'll, I'll so this way. either this way or, or over there. Okay. So, can they see me? Oh yeah, they can still see me. Okay. So, because of this additional access, a lot of these companies now have the opportunity to diversify, meaning that some companies that used to provide some space products to the industry, they view it as more of a niche. Right. Oh, this is something we can do for you. So we'll just kind of do it off to the side. But it isn't something really baked into their strategy or overall vision for the company as, hey, this is an area I want to grow and be a leader. And so these are opportunities that these companies can really look at and either adapt or fall behind and give you examples of that. You look at um, SpaceX was number one. Right. You look at Tesla is number two for EV vehicles, all these other car, all these other manufacturers are trying to catch up, trying to dump out all these EV vehicles now, right? They're all trying to catch up. Um, you can also uh, look at any other industry in the, in the past, automotive, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when the Japanese were trying to put new processes of how they build vehicles and American automotive manufacturers, said, no, we don't care. And what happened? All the share went over to Asia, right? They lost almost everything, almost went bankrupt. Right? And so this is where adapt will fall behind. So it really starts with research and, and development. Um, this is not really so much for the large companies like the Northrop's of Boeing, you know, you know, all these enormous multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar companies. This isn't really for them. They're, they really they do have a lot of research and development, but these are actually for companies who are not necessarily always thinking about the space industry. Okay, so these are companies like food packaging. These are companies like transportation and logistics, right? These are companies such as healthcare, medical. There's a lot of different industries that need to go into supporting this new space industry. Um, in addition to these private companies, the government themselves also have to start looking at how do we manage everything that's going on up and down and the economy up there. If you don't have it, it's going to be chaos, right? Because something that's okay may, may not be okay down here is okay up there, and if the rules don't match up, then we're going to have problems, especially from a compliance, regulatory, and or liability standpoint, right? So the government and or whatever issuing bodies or organizations will really have to start looking at how do we really start um, uh, managing this. Now, a lot of these companies right now, or I'm sorry, a lot of these countries and or organizations are starting to pump money into, into, these, uh, into the space uh, organizations because they realize that if they don't get a part of the pie, they will be left out completely. And this is just a small portion. You can see even the, the UAE is pumped in, you know, $817 million, you know, in the next year to try to get their system up and running. I mean, NASA's 45 million for small businesses, but they do have a larger budget than that. Japan themselves, 80 million to small businesses. You know, even in uh, Europe, you got 65 million pounds being dumped in like you said this is just a small portion of what a lot of these other countries are really pumping into the industry to kind of help these um, small businesses kind of open up the market share 
So when we speak of market share, uh, you can see here, uh, right here between 1960 to about the 2005 range, everything here is pretty consistent, right? Government launches here and there, little things. They want to do, the governments kind of self-police themselves. It's more for research, um, government uh, development, so on and so forth. So there really hasn't been much of a need to address regulatory standards and such, right? Because again, they can police themselves. But now you start to look at about 2005 on up, you know, to about 2030, because the, the cost per launch has gone down and will continue to go down, a lot more companies are now available to go in and access the space. So what does that mean, right? That means that when these companies start to put products up there, they start to mine resources, there has to be some rules on what they do and how they do it, right? From a safety standpoint, either personnel, right? Or traffic management standpoint and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different things that the government is gonna to have to start to address, right? You look at when, uh, uh, air travel really took off, you know, decades and decades ago, when there really wasn't air traffic management. But as it grew, you can see the enormous organization now that's there just to manage air traffic control. And it's going to be very similar when we get into space as well. Uh-oh. Pam, did you do something? It's not moving. Well, I, I see they just hide the uh, oh. Oh. Maybe it's a distance. Next time. Nope. Oh, there we go. Okay. It's okay? Yeah, yeah. There we go. So let's just take the health industry. Um, there has been a lot of research uh, in the effects of humans in space, but that's really been done by the government organizations, NASA, right, the U.S. government, so on and so forth. And that is really to take care of their astronauts who are highly trained, you know, very physically fit, right, ideal people to go into space. When you start opening up the market and you have regular people to go up there, right, you're going to need a lot of this help, right? That's why we have such a big medical industry here, is that a lot of the people that's going to be living up there is not going to be trained like astronauts, not going to be 100% physically fit like they are, mentally and physically, right? And so a lot of these effects right here will have to fall down to who? The medical industry, right? And so the medical industry themselves will now need to start to evolve, right? You look at some of these um, uh, regulations and standards, JACO, JACO uh, OSHA, medical schools and associated curriculums, all of these will have to evolve in order to teach this type of medicine in space. It will be a little bit different. Equipment will be different, right? How you interact with things will be different, things that you're completely used to here being, oh, I can do surgery on the ground because there's gravity and space, you know, everything can be floating around, so you're going to have to rethink how you do certain things. 
the techniques will be completely different. And so this is where medical schools will have to start looking at, oh, how do we teach? What should we teach? You know, what is safe and what is not anymore? And then what are the health standards that a medical facility in space should be, you know, uh, regulated to versus here on Earth? So this right here can be applied to just about all the industries that we're going to talk about a little bit later. So we have to see things for what they really are. What are the opportunities? And really, it is a leap of faith. Most everything that we start in new industries is going to be generally a leap of faith. So let's take air travel, for example. The very first time, there's always a whole bunch of naysayers. It's never going to work. It's just for the rich people, you know, so on and so forth. And so, you know, those people will always try to kill whatever the new idea is. But let's just say it starts to take off. We all know air travel very well. So what are all the different kind of industries that crop up? Parts manufacturing, commercial cargo, aircraft leasing, maintenance, disposal, fueling operations, airport development, security screening, air traffic control, retail, ground transportation insurance and risk management, right? That's just some of the things at the very first level that you have to look at that cropped around air travel, right? Oops, backwards. Level two, catering services, entertainment, connectivity, marketing, clubs, lounges, and so on and so forth. Now that it's become more of a everyday occurrence, how do we get more people in, involved, right? And then when you get a little bit further down, air traffic control, software, even fashion, Right now, that's a big thing. Oh, what is the next fashion? You know, what 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 are all the uniforms going to be for this new airline for the year? So you even have fashion, logistics, software, retails, are robotics, so on and so forth, and it just continues on. Right. And so if you look at this kind of a uh, you know top level roadmap, you can apply that to to space travel as well. Right. In the space economy, all these things will crop up. And how do we utilize what we've learned here on Earth in space? There are some things that we can we can mimic and use as is, but a lot of it we're going to have to modify and or build brand new. Right? And like we talked about before, the latest innovations is take electric vehicles, for example. When all these EVs came out, where are we going to charge them? Now we have superchargers everywhere, right? And you have all these other companies called EVgo, you know, starting to put out their chargers. And so you can see it starting to expand. In real life today, you're living it as we go. All these uh, new opportunities and space exploration, the second expansion with SpaceX kind of kicking it all off, right? Uh, for those who are very familiar with the startup industry, you can see all these brand new rocket companies come up, all these companies starting to pitch about space stations, all these companies starting to pitch about all these brand new ideas that they can do in a new space economy. So for the next couple of slides, we're going to talk about heavy industry. Um, this is probably one of the big things uh, in terms of what we can really get out of space, right? One of the easiest returnable, return on investment opportunities is mining, right? And with the largest return on investment. There's gonna be a number of different things that we have to take into account. There's the resources that you can gain from it. There's the technology that you can develop from it. 
but there's also a very big geopolitical side of all this that you do. Okay, so let's look at the resource and technology side. If you do, if you go and you start mining abundance of materials out there, right? There's there's asteroids that have more gold than has ever been mined on you know Earth in its history, right? So as you can see, there's so much uh, raw resources out there that it's really for the taking. Water, you can mine for water up there. Um, there's a lot of new vehicles that will have to be developed to do the mining because you are in a zero G environment or and or low earth gravity environments. So you'll have to take all of that into account. How do we get it back? Do we even get it back or do we process it there, right? Other things that we have to take a look at. Is it gonna be manned, robotics? Um, we're gonna have to have new extraction technologies, probably based on extraction technologies that we've done here on earth that we've learned, but with of course some modifications because you are in a new environment. And this is going to some of the uh, regulations, new safety and emergency equipment. What does that look like, right? Over there, you're gonna need life support systems. Over here, not as much, right? And the life support systems here is gonna be vastly different than when you're in space. So what does that look like? What are the rules, right? Do we use the same rules that NASA uses? Because if we do, no one can afford it, right? Because they're so cumbersome and so many rules out there. So we have to look at what's the balance, right? New refinery technology and methods. Do we refine in space or back there on Earth? Again, everything was designed to be in a 1G environment. So if you're in low Earth gravity or in zero G environment, what does that look like, right? Things are floating around now versus on the ground on a conveyor belt, who knows? New ways to think about. It. Let's look at the geopolitical aspects. So imagine you bring down all these precious metals and you just pretty much blow apart <laughs> everything that we know of how precious gold is and it's not anymore, right? It could be just another rock on the ground. Those are things that we have to look at. Now, it could be that because we are exploring in space, we need a lot more of it. And so maybe we can maintain this, who knows, right? But this is just things that we have to take a look at. You have a brand new marketplace for all of these things, right? Either here on earth, that you can sell products that you get from space down here and or utilize it up there, right? So now you have a new marketplace. You have brand new job opportunities and it will stimulate econ economic growth. Anytime, every time that we've always had a space explosion in terms of exploration and or interesting using space, then there's always been some sort of economic growth with it, right? If not just technological growth, because a lot of things that we're used to using today was really based off of the space program. Oops, sorry. And this is probably going to be one of the biggest things right here is you're going to be redefining economic politics, right? Let's just say, you know, when we get to the next one, actually, let's just go ahead and go to the next one. When you get to energy, we're also used to, we need fossil fuels and all this. So we're beholden to countries that have the most of it. So now when you're independent of it and you no longer need them, what does that look like, right? 
things that we do, our policies that we make here will be completely different. And so these are things that we have to really look at, right? From an energy standpoint, you go into space, solar energy, if you're, if we're good and we know what we're doing, we can have pretty much limitless solar energy up there 24 seven. And so what does that look like down here? How do you get the, the energy back down here? Use some of it here, use some of it for, for space when you have all of the other industries going on. This in itself is going to advance the solar energy capture technology, right? Better solar cells, maybe new ways of capturing the energy, right? Because when you're a company who is driven by profits, you're going to want to continually do better so you get a higher ROI, right? That's not necessarily NASA or government's stake on it. They just want to do it for pure research. So cost to them doesn't matter as long as the government keeps giving them money. But private industry, they're driven by their ROI. That's what it's going to end up being. So when the ROI is there, they're going to continue to try to develop, squeeze out the technology as best they can to get a higher return on profit. So there's a lot in manufacturing right now that's that's been happening for quite a while um, in space. There's been a lot of experiments of how can we manufacture in space. There's been a lot of talk about uh, can we even build a satellite modularized in space um, with little to no interaction with humans? Um, can we 3D print in space? There's been uh, missions up there to test out that, uh, that technology. Uh, but it will be uh, big changes to the manufacturing methodologies. Uh, we know what the ideas are down here. It's just how do we apply it to space? And when we look at a lot of these industries and the same thing uh, when we build satellites is everything is meant for 1G environment, right? Let's take satellites, go back to satellites for a little bit. A lot of people sometimes ask us, why do we test so much on satellites and why does it cost so much to build satellites? Well, let's compare it to airplanes. You wanna test as you fly for the most similar environment that it's going to see. And so what does that mean? You build a prototype, you fly the aircraft. For a satellite, that's not that easy. Once it goes, it's not coming back. So we have to simulate that environment here. Everything we build on a satellite is meant for low gravity environment or no gravity environment, microgravity environments. So that means that whatever arms are deployable, whatever opens up, those are very weak. It's not designed for a 1G environment. And so we have all of these offload fixtures to offload the weight when we open up the arms and do deployables and so on and so forth. So all those equipment have to be built, designed, and there's cost involved with it. So how do you simulate a vacuum environment? We have to put it in a gigantic chamber, suck out all the air, do our testing in there. And all those chambers cost hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And those tests are not cheap. And so that's the only way we can test it here. And so that's why things cost more. So now, if you were to build it in space, you don't need those systems because you're in the environment it's meant to operate in. So you can open and deploy something and that's the environment it's meant. So you can cut off hundreds of millions of dollars of support equipment because you're in, already in the environment. 
You don't need those kind of things. And so that's something to think about here in the manufacturing world, right? Now, that's a bonus for products that are meant to be in space, but for techniques that were pioneered here on Earth, it becomes a little bit difficult in space, such as you take 3D printing, for example, right? 3D printing, whether it's powder or fused deposit modeling, FDM or, or um, resin printing, that's all designed for a 1G environment that's holding materials down while you're lasering or, you know, or um, so on and so forth. But now you're in a low gravity environment, it's all floating everywhere. How does it work now, right? And so there are things that will cost more and there are things that will be cheaper, but as you have more research and development, eventually that will come down just like everything else. And let's look at the geopolitical aspects of this as well, right? Manufacturing footprint, redistributed. Now, you know, when we do a lot of city planning, oh, this is for industry, this is for residential use and so on and so forth. And when it's used for industry, there's a lot of contamination in the ground, so on and so forth. If you want to repurpose it, it costs a lot of money to clean it up and all those kinds of stuff. If you shift a lot of the heavy or dirty industry off world, now you have a lot more space on earth to redistribute, to use as you will, right? And so again, it's going to change, for example, the retail or the real estate industry of how we look at these kind of things. It's gonna stimulate growth from an export import uh, uh, aspect, right? Now you have a lot more opportunities to use raw resources outside that is pretty much limitless as long as you can mine it out. Right. Everything that we've been doing here on Earth is dependent on which country has that resource. And so that will limit our manufacturing capability and ability. Right. You look at the, the current big thing, which is rare earth elements between Asia, China and the West. Right. Who has the most? Who's preventing who from getting what? And that really dictates you know, how our manufacturing works. And then, of course, one of the big thing is we're going to have a reduction in planetary environmental impacts because you're moving all these heavy industries, which is considered pretty dirty, off world, at least some of it off world. Right. And so that gives you an opportunity to really increase your conservation efforts. Construction is going to be pretty much the same thing as as the previous ones. Um, there's a lot of companies right now that does construction, construction equipment themselves, uh, they have to look at how do we do this? What's available up there? Is the current designs of our equipment uh, even usable in that environment? And we have to really look at it. Uh, but if it does work, you're going to have advancement in 3D printing technologies like we talked about before. They're going to have their um, raw materials and resources right there versus having to be shipped to them. And then they're going to have to look at microgravity environments. Construction in a microgravity environment could be a actual plus because now you don't need gigantic heavy cranes because it doesn't weigh as much, right? So these are things that could either help them or might cost them a little bit more in terms of research and development. But I think it's going to be an overall benefit. Um, then they have to start looking at 
do we do this in an autonomous way or do we have a teleoperated or is it manned? Right? Again, that looks at additional new markets for companies that does robotics, um, you know, remote teleoperated systems and so on and so forth. Um, again, there's a lot of geopolitical uh, aspects to this. Uh, there's going to be either new companies cropping up that does construction specifically in the space environment, or do the new companies right now invest in and start looking at how do we expand our footprint into new areas and new market shares? And so that's either going to be a make or break for these companies. And I know some, a lot of companies right now start to think about it, but we haven't gotten far enough yet for them to actually really invest a lot of their time into it. So one of the easiest ones that we can look at right now is tourism. Everybody knows, right? Let's just go up there, you know, uh, with that Virgin Galactic and uh, SpaceX sending some guys up there, some people up there. And so let's look at tourism. Uh, tourism is probably one of the very first ones meant for regular people on Earth who isn't a 100% trained astronaut, right, in peak physical condition. So what are the, some of the, the um, companies or industries that's really going to need the services? Well, the first one is going to be transportation. And this is where you see, you know, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin and all these other companies, Virgin Galactic and so on and so forth, really start to try to get into the transportation mode and make it more commonplace for people to really get up into space and enjoy it and make it an, an everyday uh, occurrence, just like air travel it is to us today. And when you have transportation, we talked about earlier, a lot of different industries are going to crop up around it. You're going to need, quote unquote, spaceport, right? Whatever you want to call it at the time. But the spaceport's going to need support. They're going to need fueling. They're going to need all these other people. Just like you see in an airport, it's going to be pretty much identical from a transportation standpoint for people going into space. So then let's look at hotels. Um, there are companies out there right now that's trying to build a habitat that will um, pretty much be a space hotel. And these hotels that are here on Earth, like the Hilton brand, name brands, and so on and so forth right now, are starting to look at these other companies who are building these hotels in space and see if they can do a partnership with them. Right? get their name brand up there because they don't have the technical ability, but they understand the service industry, right? And so now they're starting to work on some partnerships together. And this is only going to grow as we get into space more and more. So let's look at the other side of this. Now that you've got all the hotels, you've got the infrastructure, the transportation, and the service, well, people have to eat, right? So... Right now, the food that goes up there, man, it's not palatable. It's not, it doesn't look very good. It's just like a meal ready to eat from the military, right? Not exactly. It may taste good, but it certainly doesn't look good, right? And so when you look at it from a service and a hotel experience standpoint, now you have to look at how do we get our food up there and how do we make it an experience that people somewhat recognize down here without having to squeeze out like a toothpaste, right? Because you know, who wants to eat their food out of a toothpaste can? You know? 
Nobody wants to do that. And so then we have to look at packaging as well, right? So current packaging companies is an example. You can't send up cardboard boxes as of this time or probably in any time in the near future. Why? Because it's highly flammable. It's got a lot of contaminants in it. They rip it and, you know, shreds coming out everywhere. So we have to look at these companies that package the food. How are we going to do it? How's it going to get up there? How's it going to stay fresh, right? How's it going to maintain its appeal to the service industry and a hotels and a guest while also maintaining health standards, right? And so these companies right here will have to start looking at how they do different things differently. And then there's the operations and maintenance side of the house, right? Where's the ground operations, mission control, maintenance. We're going to have to look at, uh, you know, clearing the way for uh, space debris, which has always been an issue for numbers of years right now. And so there's also this side. And then when you really start digging even further down into the next level, well, these people who service this whole entire tourism industry, where do they live? Are they going to fly back and forth from Earth? That's costing a lot of money, right? And so we have to look at when they start living in space, then there's another economy that crops up around the people who work there, right? And so it just keeps going down and down level by level by level as you dig further down. And it isn't any different when you make the comparison here on Earth. Move to a new city, new industries crop up, people who live there crop up, more industries behind them to support what they want. It's going to be no different here when we get to space. And we just have to look a little bit further down, many, many levels down to see the opportunities that's going to be available. So we talked a little bit about this packaging, uh, food packaging industry. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about material sciences here as well, but the way that we, we package our food is really designed around logistics, is really designed around where the food's going to be stored, how it's going to be used, and all of that's going to change when you go to space. Either you grow the food in space or you bring it up from Earth. And so these companies will now have to start rethinking, oh, well, I do not have a warehouse within 10 miles of 30 supermarkets. Mm -hmm. Right. So what do I do? Do I change the packaging? Do I work with the logistics guys to change this? Right. Uh, I cannot use the cheapest method to package the food in a cardboard box now. Right. Or whatever that they're using. They have to think about that environment that you're going to be in. Is it even allowed? Right. Let's look at how that's really changed here on Earth. You look at cruise ships and air travel. Whole entire catering industries have cropped up around these. They have special chefs who knows the palate changes in a aircraft with high pressure environment, right? Your your uh, taste buds are lowered, so they put more salt in there. So there's a lot of different things that happen because of air travel and cruise ships. Look at how cruise ships manage their kitchen, how they get their food. Right? It's not going to be the same as supermarkets, and it's definitely not the same as air travel. And so for them, all, all these new companies, all these, these new catering services, all these new uh, employees are starting to support each one of those markets. And it's going to be the same thing here when we get into space. And even now, um, the governments are working with um, 
certain, well, I wouldn't say certain companies, but there's a university, uh, Food Sciences University, that they really work with in terms of packaging food for their for their astronauts, right? And these are things that, if we're really going to live and work in space, these are things that these multi-billion-dollar companies should really start looking at themselves as a potential way for a new market for them. And so we've been talking a lot about what are some of the materials that really go into this. Um, paper and cardboard is bad, it's highly flammable, right? Just like certain things that aren't allowed in a submarine because of high flammability and all this kind of stuff, it's gonna be some of the same things that we look at in space. And these are things that when we work in the space industry, we're very concerned with plastics, outgassing, right? Biodegradable materials, things that we're used to down here has different effects up in space, right? I'll give you a story here. We bought some cables from a company and we weren't sure whether or not they were space qualified. So what happened? We would, we did not want to put it onto our vehicle. So we put it into a thermal vac chamber. We baked it out and we realized it was outgassing. It was not space qualified. It outgassed so much that it contaminated our chamber and we baked out that chamber 24 for a whole week, 24 seven in order to clean the chamber. So if we sent that up into space, it would have contaminated all our optics and pretty much destroyed our, our vehicle. Something as cheap as the plastic, right? And so we have to start looking at materials that we say is okay here on earth, it's gonna have different properties than in space. And so we have to be very careful about what we use, right? Things that we say, oh, it's biodegradable here, so we're going to use that. But biodegrading is based off of biological processes down here. It's not going to work in space, right? And so your biodegradable here is going to be one of those, you know, never degrading pieces of trash up in space. So now something good down here doesn't work up there. And so these are things that these packaging industry people will have to really start looking at. Um, to do in, uh, research and investment of what is the best cost-effective method to packaging these new products going up in space. Because today's world, the way that they package um, uh, supplies that go up to International Space Station is on one end of that spe spectrum of being extremely expensive and not you know, uh, sustainable from a capitalist point of view. You don't want to go to the other end, which a lot of current industries are, where you know they're trying to cheap as possible but still maintain regulations. You need to meet somewhere in the middle, currently based on our technology and where we're going to be going. And of course, that will change depending on you know how things change in space. So this isn't going to be completely set in stone. This is just a snapshot of where we are right now. So one of the biggest things, every single one of these industries that we've been talking about, it's all dependent on logistics and transportation. None of these right here will survive without their supplies, without their equipment getting to where they need to be. It all depends on logistics. How do we get the stuff up to space? How do we get the stuff back down to earth? How do we get people up there, back down, so on and so forth? How do we get 
equipment to the moon? How do we get equipment to asteroids? Whatever it might be. Logistics is going to be the way. Each one of these different industries we've talked about previously is going to require something a little bit different, right? Transporting uh, raw materials is going to require heavy transports. Energy is going to require different sets of transportation, right? Manufacturing, tourism, packaging, all of these are going to be a little bit different. And so these logistic company can either start looking at how do we do this? And is this something we want to get into? Or other companies will come into place and take over for that portion of the new market. Uh, oh, we talked about that already. And then one of the things that we really lose and don't really talk too much about is in these last couple of years, we've always been really, really concerned with, oh, here are all the big projects. These are all the fantastic, you know, great marketing, big projects like getting to the moon, getting to Mars, getting to the space station. So the non, I guess, uh, big marketing ones are, what's the software systems that are going to manage these, right? Because every single piece of equipment, every single um, thing that you bring up and down of there is going to require some kind of system to manage it, not just from a logistics standpoint, but you have to also look up traffic management as well and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different softwares that's going to pop up to really manage a lot of these different things because, again, a lot of the current software is designed for our environment here. So it's going to be a different environment, different time frames, different you know lengths, different things you're going to want to need to see, different things that you're going to want to make sure that um, you record, such as you know, say food for example. Over here, you're not so concerned about radiation. When you're getting into space, you do want to matter. It does matter how much radiation your food is getting, right? And so there's a lot of different things that we have to think about. And one of the most important ones is going to be navigation and communications. Um, everybody is used to GPS. We're like, oh, it's fantastic. GPS is designed here for terrestrial. And so there are companies out there right now that's looking to build a entire GPS system around the moon, right? Because as you colonize the moon, people are going to want to know where they're at, where their equipment's at, where their people's at, and so on and so forth. So they're looking at, do we build a planetary GPS system on whichever planet we're on, right? But the first one being the moon. But we also have to look at beyond right, or deeper exploration, right? This navigation system, we're going to need to know a little bit more real time than we have before, right? You look at the Voyager spacecraft that's way beyond our solar system now, right? A lot of our current navigation systems are pre-programmed. So it's pre-programmed in. If something happens, it comes back, we have to send some information. They cannot figure it out themselves maybe in a rudimentary standpoint. So we have to look at what are these new types of navigation systems? Where does it need to be placed? What kind of systems are in there, right? Either whether they be emergency beacons and so on and so forth. So let's look at some of the uh, systems here on Earth. You take ships, for example, many, many, many years ago, right? Lighthouses, 
They're non-existent now because why? We have GPS. But before, that was their emergency and navigation beacon were lighthouses, right? Same thing with air traffic control. And now space, it's going to be the same. Communications and connectivity. Um, communications isn't going to be immediate. Pick up the phone, you're going to be able to answer. It's going to be minutes right now, right? Even from the moon. You're going to say something, it's going to take a little bit for them to communicate, right? So we have to look at what needs to be real time, what can be, what can be delayed. And so we have to look at this communication system because it's going to be used for everything safety, emergency use, regular business use, you know, so on and so forth, right? You want to be able to have real-time connection. You want to have solid communication and connectivity because you don't want to be halfway into your discussion or an emergency system and it cuts off those buffers, right? Same thing here. That's why we keep upgrading our home internet system, right? Because we don't want dial-up anymore. It doesn't work for us, right? We don't want cable anymore. It doesn't work for us, right? We'll take fiber at this point. And this is probably one of the ones that isn't talked about that much, but there's there's a lot of um, discussion right now in the background about potential bandwidth shortages. Um, there's a lot of bandwidth that's determined by governments of who can use what and how much of it. And so as certain industries grow, the limitations or the rules that were set in place before will have to be reevaluated because of the bandwidth grows, right? And there's a lot more people being used in there. And so it starts to be very, very busy. And so they have to look at what do we do with this, right? When we're in space and new markets are there, a lot more people are gonna be up there. How does that affect our current bandwidth usage here on Earth, right? Or is it an entirely new system? And so these are things that you either adapt for companies in the telecommunication industry to adapt and start looking at this, or again, new companies will come in and take that market share. We. We all, we've been talking a lot about uh, how do we get up there, uh, what do we use up there, but how do we really maintain, how do we keep living up there, how do we make sure that the environment is the best that we can have it for what we need to do. Um, we don't want to just go in without having a maintenance plan, right? from everybody here who's worked in the corporate world, um, and I've seen this many, many times myself, is somebody introduces a brand new project, a brand new system, and this is gonna cost me $15 million to implement and buy. And I always ask them, what's the cost for maintenance over 10 years? Mm -hmm. No one has an answer, but they don't wanna answer it, right? If you don't maintain it, the system is worthless in a couple of years, right? Everybody's scrounging for money to try to maintain the system, right? And then it becomes what we call band-aided. And then the system just goes away and then another one comes into its place. So how do we maintain this ecosystem? Space traffic management, right? Um, 
before this, if you can imagine airplanes just flying where whatever route they want, at whatever level they want. Just imagine that. It's going to be complete chaos. And you're going to need the same thing up in space. I mean, granted, the, the U.S. Space Force right now has had some sort of system to monitor traffic and or debris up there for quite a while, but it's going to be a lot more robust, more like an air traffic New routes, right? Right now, a lot of routes and a lot of orbits and all that is predetermined for the space station or satellite system that's going to be up there for many, many years. And now you could potentially have, you know, for lack of a better term, truckers, right? People who deliver logistics. Where do they go? What routes can they use? Where can they avoid from getting hit from uh, space debris and all this kind of stuff, right? So these are kind of things that the new systems will have to take a look at is what areas do we keep clear for this or that? And as a as good example here, everybody's driven the freeway in LA. Trucks are not allowed on a 110 or certain freeways on certain hours of the day, right? Because that's for commuters. Outside of track of, of um, you know heavy traffic hours, then the trucks can come in. And those are the kind of regulations that eventually we're going to have to start looking at. What do we do? Carpool traffic, trucks only lanes, and so on and so forth, right? As a good an example here. And this has been one of the big ones for the last couple of years, and it's growing. How do we clean up the trash in orbit? There's a lot of companies out there right now that's trying to solve this issue. Of, of debris in space, not even just companies, but a lot of universities and, and a lot of students are trying to come up with ideas themselves of what they can do to help clean this up. And again, this is going to be another non-flashy industry as a comparison right now, you know, the woman who started uh, waste management, who collects our trash, is a billionaire, collects trash, right? Industry. May not be flashy, but it's an industry, right? That we have to look at, and it's absolutely a necessity for us. Okay. Like we talked about for the other three, without established rules, you're going to have chaos. You have to have common rules, and without these common rules, people are going to do what they want to do. Especially when it comes to private corporation, when it's all built on profit, right? Or what people are going to want to do. So if there are no repercussions for what they're going to do, they're going to do it. Why not? Right? And so this is what we have to look at. And that's what leads to a lot of these agencies are going to need to do a bit of an overhaul and a rewrite of what exactly they manage and maintain today and how it relates to the space environment, whether it's Department of Transportation, you know, whether it's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, so on and so forth, they're gonna to have to reevaluate and look at what they're doing. Because again, a lot of the companies right now, I mean, a lot of the space um, travel right now is done by the US government. So the US government, quote unquote, we police ourselves. Right. And based on the number of regulations that NASA has, I believe it. And then some. Right. So, so let's, let's talk about governance a little bit here. 
over the years, you know, when Sputnik started and the Apollo program really came into play, uh, they developed something called the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, broad guideline, just a guideline of how and what space should be utilized for, based on that snapshot in time, based on what they knew, based on, you know, their culture at the time, that's what's happening. And as you can see, from that point to the present, there really hasn't been any kind of an update. And the reason why is because it's been mainly just government organizations. The governments can talk to each other. And so, you know, they have some political leverage and then they can try to work things out together because they knew they know that one country cannot do it all. So they're gonna have to try to work together. But now when commercialization is really coming into play, Artemis Accords are written. Now, again, these Artemis Accords is a refinement. It's not something completely brand new, but they're adding in some new things to it, right? Where they're adding in wording for commercialization so that we can gain some kind of normalization of being in space. Right? Again, just guidelines. And so you can see a, a lot of countries have signed up to the Artemis Accords, but there's a number of countries that's missing from it. China, Russia, all these other big players, and they're gonna do what they wanna do, okay? And so again, this is one of those where, okay, we have to work with all these different countries, but this international space law and governments and legislations, licensing and permits and all that kind of stuff, um, what does that mean? We don't know. It needs to be written right now, right? Because theoretically, no one can own any planets. Resources are free for all for Earth. But again, corporate, other companies, private or, you know, public company, whatever, you go up there, they're going to own it. So from a liability standpoint, who owns what? Do I have my permits to do this? Do I own that? So on and so forth. So we have to start looking at all that kind of stuff. We talked about the safety standards. What are the regulations? And what's the accountability and transparency up there? These are nothing different that we haven't seen down here on Earth. Right? We just have to apply it to a brand new environment as we evolve. As we evolve this industry completely evolves and all of these accords and or regulations will evolve with it. And this isn't even uh, really including what uh, the United Nations is trying to do themselves. And so you have all these different bodies and groups have their own types of quote unquote regulations on how space should be used. But if we're going out to space, we're becoming one living in a vast environment. And we have to start looking at how do we kind of come together to have a safety standard going forward, right? And the same thing here with, with uh, aircraft. If you really look at, um, from an aircraft perspective, from air travel, there's certain reasons why certain airplanes and certain companies are not allowed to fly into the US, that they don't meet the safety rules, right? And regulations and maintenance and so on and so forth. And so these are things that we have to look at, same thing in space, right? It's for your safety. Other countries don't see it that way, and so then they don't do it, right? 
and we have to look at how does that work in the space environment. So how do we make all of this work? All of this is really going to end up being an education standpoint. How do we educate people and make it a normal everyday topic as though, hey, I'm going to go to you know San Francisco for the weekend. Same thing. How do we make it that normalized? How do we do it? We have to educate at all different levels. Um, whether you're in elementary school, all the way up to high school, the university levels, you're going to have to make sure that this is part of their curriculum and that the curriculum that you're teaching is actual real life things and not just theoretical. Okay? A lot of universities like to teach theoretical. I went to USC, highly theoretical, not much hands-on. Other universities are more hands-on. So we have to look at what do we do and what's that curriculum going to look like. We do want to encourage hands-on learning because the best way to learn is being hands-on, right? Reading some books is great to get the idea through, but until you actually get there and do it, it's going to be completely different. And we talk a lot about curriculums in universities, but there's also a lot of different other ways that we can talk to um, aspiring people who, who love the space industry. But there's also clubs. There's also outside uh, events that you can do yourself or join um, that actually helps in this kind of environment. Um, like I'm working with the Cal State Long Beach team with their CubeSat and, you know, they're outreaching to high school students to kind of get them involved in what they're doing as part of an educational outreach themselves. And so those are the kind of things that we should invest more in because these are things that students have come in themselves to start. It isn't a prerequisite for them to graduate where they have to do it. This is what they want to do because they're very interested in it and we need to support them. There's a lot of uh, people who don't know where to go to to talk to somebody. So there should be more mentorship programs out there, um, not just, oh, I work in a big company, so just talk to the mentors within the company. Well, people outside the industry, I know a lot of people outside the industry who do not, who is very interested in space, but they have no idea who to talk to or what to do or what to learn. Um, my friends are lucky because a group of us work in this industry, so they can always talk with us. But there's a lot of other people who don't, right? Even teachers, I've gone to events where high school teachers and other um, uh, family members and all that, they love space, but they don't really know much about it. And so those are things that we can do better to help clear the air on that. And like I said, make it an everyday topic for them. Uh, and then we also did talk about training, but we have to look at training from a different perspective. I'll take the medical industry again. Um, medical industry is just concerned with terrestrial, right? What does it mean in space? So medical schools, so on and so forth, will have to reevaluate how they teach, what they teach, is the same methodologies going to work in space or not? it doesn't, what is the new methods, how do we teach that, you know, and, and so on and so forth. In addition to that, with new methods that come in, 
these medical uh, schools can say, hey, the current tools don't work. So then you got to work with medical device companies. Hey, I need something new, right? These are going to be the new standards in the space. And so again, this continues to bloom, you know, expand out even from a uh, medical industry uh, perspective. And one of the last thing is we have to utilize our media and outreach events. Uh, we have to change the, the perception is changing right now, which is fantastic. Um, but there's still a bit of a um, stigma that, you know, hey, science or heat, hey, that's not cool and all this stuff. But it is changing right now. And so we have to continue to push forward to say, hey, there's a lot of different things that we can do in there. And it's not just for engineering and so on and so forth, right? We have to expand and broaden our view and horizon so that we do make it um, interesting for everybody. Somebody always has something to contribute to this. And so when they do feel a piece of, when they feel like they're part of it, then they'll be more apt to stay in it. And again, it's no different than if you're at work. If they ask for your opinion, and they take your opinion, and they try to utilize it, then you feel like you're being heard, and you're more apt to stay there and not be upset. Everything that we currently do here today on Earth, how we teach people, how we operate our regular lives, um, how we interact with our environment and our ecosystem, it really is not that different than if you move into a new market share. Move into space, you just have to tweak some things because things, some things will be different, but it isn't any different than how you operate your daily lives here on Earth. And that's how we have to start um, looking at what space is beyond the flashy programs. I landed on Mars, now what? Right? I got to the moon, now what? Right? What do we do with it? Otherwise, we're going to end up right back where Apollo is. We got to the moon, done for the next 30 years. Right? So we have to look at what do we do? How do we capitalize this going forward? Okay. That's pretty much my my presentation, is there any questions that anybody has? Uh, these are top level, by the way. So we can go in depth on a lot of them. Yes? Um, at the very beginning, you had two slides. One was showing 2023 with $15 billion being used mm -hmm. for something, and the other one, the next slide, said 2023, $450 billion. Um, can you just describe so, what those two So, uh, sure. So this one right here is for launch providers, the first one, ah. okay? So the first one is, is launch providers in, you know, 2023, it was about $15 billion market share. And as SpaceX continues to ramp up, especially with their Starship and all these other smaller um, providers at not just the heavy lifts, but the medium to small lifts, 
the industry is going to continue to grow because we're going to have more launch providers. So that might be the total cost of all launches in the Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then this one right here is pretty much how the space economy is going to grow. So all the other industries that really support um, either those launch in, uh, those launch providers and or industries are specifically designed to be in space. And so you're looking at, you know, an ex exponential increase as you keep going, as you can see, right? As long as launch provider and the interest in space continues, right? The economy will continue to grow. And as you saw uh, in Artemis, of course, it isn't just in the United States, right? These are countries all over the world. Japan is putting some massive money. UAE is putting in massive money, you know, to put in China is putting enormous amounts of money to really get into space because they see the potential of it. All right. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? Uh, AC online. He has a question. He can speak up. Okay. Please speak up. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'd like to uh, like to uh, thank you for such a such a thorough uh, fine overview of, of, of the subject uh, of matter. Uh, just because I uh, yesterday I actually experienced uh, the uh, the uh, theft <laughs> of a catalytic converter from one of my vehicles. I got me thinking about. Uh, what I would categorize as, uh, I don't know, um, space crime. <laughs> I mean, sooner or later, there there'll probably be the uh, <clears throat> the first uh, space murder. Uh, yes. Will, will there be things like dedicated uh, space penitentiaries? Uh, what about something like uh, space piracy? Will that will that be a thing? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, but what thought might be uh, might be given to? To, to this kind of uh, phenomena. I mean, the, uh, for example, the um, uh, in the uh, the early days of the gold rush, uh, once you have populations in space, what kind of uh, community might be uh, might be uh, sort of uh, would arise with uh, <clears throat> with the sort of various uh, 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 things provided for for, for the uh, for the uh, uh, miners and so forth. Um, anyway, it was just a, just a thought that occurred to me. I'm just curious what kind of thought might be given to, to these. Uh, yeah. uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, this, this presentation did not really cover the social aspects. It kind of, you know, skirted around the edge of it, but you're absolutely right. These kind of things will, ha will happen um, for, for sure. It will happen. You can see it here on Earth. It's happened. It will definitely happen in space. And this is where we have to start looking at some of these regulations and rules and not just beyond the governance, but also, like I said, from a crim criminal justice standpoint, what does that mean? Who has jurisdiction up there, right? You've got to determine all that. Over here, it's either state or federal or Interpol or whatnot. What does that mean up there? Who knows, right? If it happened on your base, maybe it has your country's rules. I don't know. And those are the kind of things that absolutely will have to be thought out, right? So that's a very good question. There is definitely a social aspect to it, and there are definitely industries that really cater to all of that as well. Like I said, um, you know, police enforcement, um, jails, and you know, stuff like that. There's always going to be a lot of that. So you're absolutely right. There's definitely another market share in in that part of <laughs> in that part of the realm. That's a very good point. Thank you for bringing that up. 
Tony online has a question about space police. Tony, do you want to speak out? Funny? <laughs> he said he's a police commissioner studying policing and. Hi, sorry, I'm having a little bit of tru trouble talking. Okay, <laughs> using my phone. We can hear you now. Uh, perfect, yeah. Um, I just joined the meeting, but you are talking about something that I do. So I'm a police commissioner for the city of Eugene in Oregon. And that's actually something that I've been thinking about is I, I think we need to do more. Um, I mean, I'm trying to do more exploration on how it works here on Earth and then thinking about how that would work in space. Um, mostly I'm like I said, I just joined the AIAA and I'm hoping to see because I also come from an architectural background, I'm um, an architectural designer and I'm kind of thinking about how the spaces up there would work, but there's so many different kinds of designs that people are making and I don't know what the standard is and not that there needs to be a standard, but maybe kind of seeing some of the common threads that we have in the spaces up there um, would also influence like how it is that you can, we can provide security for people. Um, and just, it's interesting to think about how the police coordinate themselves and like how, how would you even coordinate up in space, everything at least in the beginning uh, presumably is like a lot smaller in scale. So then how do you not have like a space that feels like a police state, so to speak, but also um, people that feel secure, how, how to make people secure. So, and, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is more like, I want to connect with somebody. If anybody's been thinking about this as well, I'd love to kind of talk about this a bit more and explore it. And then we can talk about how my um, experience as a police commissioner for the last three years um, could, you know, continue to influence us, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. That very great point. Actually, I've, I've thought about some of that. Um, we should definitely connect. Um, we should talk some more about uh, how the space economy and, and how living in space is going to work from a social perspective. Uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting topic to me as well. But uh, you're right. We have to strike that balance of how much policing is necessary up there because today's world again it's government regulated these are government employees they're trained to be they're probably former military so they have highly disciplined in terms of their integrity but again when you start moving further and further away from that because they're self-policing at this point not to say that even that doesn't things happen there but as you start to move some of that away then you bring in a lot more risk involved and this is where you were saying Bonnie, mm -hmm. is that there's a lot more opportunities now for potential piracy, theft, you know, bodily harm or injury of other people up there, depending on whatever the issues are. And we have to strike that balance of what are the rules up there, how it's going to be governed, who's going to govern it, right? And what's the jur jurisdiction and what is it going to look like? Now, granted, there are certain laws down here that can easily be applied up there, you know, broadly, hey, don't murder somebody, otherwise, you know, this is gonna happen to you. But for other things, what does that look like, right? And so you're, you're right, it's a, it's a very um, big issue that needs to be looked at as well. Um, I'm not sure many people have been looking too much into it. So I would love to talk with you some more and really explore that idea, especially since you're, you know, in police commissioner uh, world. So that would be fantastic. Yes. So if you want to put your email in the chat, I'd love to contact you. My email is already there, just so you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hey. 
I just wanted to piggyback on what you were saying about governing. Since nobody really has jurisdiction up there, is there a chance that we might see like a separate governing, like maybe like a world government emerge because there's no jurisdiction? And so that one's, in my view, that one's probably going to be a little bit hard. <laughs> um, it's great to say yes, <laughs> but in today's political environment, I doubt that's really going to happen anytime soon because our thought process currently today is that we're all in our own little world and we want to make sure that our little world is the best world and we're going to make sure everybody else agrees with me, right? And so because of our cultural perception and the way that we look at ourselves, it's probably not going to happen for quite a while until we start exploring further and further out where earth starts to look smaller and smaller and smaller that we just become, oh, okay, maybe they should be one government, right? Because there's so much more out there. So I think it will take some time, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. It seems like it may be hard for governments to police each other up there because, for instance, like you said, Russia and China won't sign the Artemis Agreement. That's they correct. They notoriously are harsh cybersecurity. That's correct. That's absolutely so correct. When we talk about like communications and things like that, if something goes offline, yes. Like what's it take to actually even get to the equipment to diagnose it to figure out what happened and to figure out who did it and then So if you look at the snapshot of today's geopolitical outlook, um, you know, these countries between the US, China and you know other foreign nations, you know, they have quote unquote these hotlines to de-escalate potential mm -hmm. situations. And in the short term, they're probably going to have to do something similar to that, right? Because at this point, everybody is fighting for dominance, right? And when you're fighting for dominance, you're not going to be really open to, hey, I want to work with you, right? And so this is where the, the system that we've set up today in terms of setting up these kind of political hotlines to ensure, you know, we escalate situations so on and so forth will have to probably continue. And one of the great examples is, you know, recent, not recently, but, you know, a few years ago you know, in Syria, when um, the Syrians were trying to attack this oil field that the U.S. was protecting, right? The U.S. called Russia, hey, none of your guys are in there, right? No, we're not. So they went ahead and bombed them, right? So that's one of those, even though they were really there, but, you know, that was the hotline. And because they said they weren't there, they can't say anything after that, right? And so these are those kind of hotlines, the escalation hotlines, they're probably going to have to keep for quite a while. So that's the unfortunate outlook for this world right now. <laughs> we have not yet come together and cohesive into one environment. But great point. Hey, Dennis, this is Martin McLaughlin. I don't know whether we knew each other at Northrop. I was there for 39 years. Oh, okay. But, I'm going uh, cross paths one, one day or another. We must have. Uh, good presentation. Uh, what I would like you to uh, comment on is the power requirements to go from 280 billion to 450 billion to 1 trillion economy. Um, and it's not just uh, electrical. It's a lot of that would be thermal power. And there's an economy of scale problem uh, with uh, 
as you move up, if you're just relying on uh, solar energy at 1300 watts per square meter. That's, you're absolutely correct on that. Um, and so let me, let me get down a little bit further here. Hold on a second. So that's a very good point. I, I did gloss over that real quick, but let's, let's go back and talk about that uh, in a second. I think it's essential. I think it's a, a, a prime mover as far as uh, allowing that economy to grow. Yes, you're absolutely correct, which is why I added in here uh, also for advancement of miniaturization of nuclear fusion technology, because you're right, it isn't just solar. There's going to be other kind of power generation systems and ways of getting power because you're, you're right. Solar isn't going to provide everything that's going to be needed by 2030. And so we're going to have to look at what can we do today and what do we have today to help supplement that until if we decide solar is going to be the way to go. Right. So well, and, and is it is it distributed or central or somewhat centralized on Earth? You know, we we have huge economy of scale by having these, you know, gigawatt uh, power plants. Um, yeah. You know, solar you can have distributed, you know, that, that's fine. But I don't think every every uh, drilling outpost wants its own nuclear plant. That is correct. And so a lot of that is going to be dependent on whichever industry is up there and how they lay out their system, just like you were saying, right? If it's a one-off outpost, they're going to have their own power generation one way. But if you have 10 different manufacturing areas or mining areas together, you're going to have a different power distribution system, right? So it's all dependent on your layout and what you actually have that you need um, power from a certain grid. So you're absolutely correct on that. And, and just one more thing. One of my um, interests is uh, uh, thermal power, thermal rockets. Uh -huh. If you could beam the energy from a centralized source, then you don't need any onboard combustion devices or a nuclear uh, reactor. All you need is a propellant to uh, heat up. That is correct. A, a, we don't see that on Earth, but uh, yeah. really, well, I guess you do with uh, electric trains and things. Yes. But um, so there's a, a, a having um, power available, uh, beamed power particularly, uh, enables transportation options that you wouldn't otherwise have. You're absolutely correct, and and that and that does kind of go into the transmission technology, like you were saying. Right? Right. How do we get this energy to them? I mean, right now it's a matter of transmission over power lines or via battery systems and so on and so forth. But you know, you take your phones for example, right? Before your iPhones were connected via USB-C or USB lightning cable, whatever lightning cable, and now what is it? It's just a docking port, right? Wireless transmission, wireless power. And that's- yeah, I mean, In vacuum, you get a lot more options. Than... That is correct. And so there are a lot of different opportunities. As you can see, all these people bring up all these different ideas, and these are just expanding on just the top level that I have here. So there's so many different questions and so many opportunities for all these other industries that it's, it's abundant for everybody to, to be a part of. Fantastic question. Thank you very much. Is there anything else? Uh, Sudhir, online has a question. Hi, hi, Dennis. Hi. 
Hi, thanks Dennis, for that enlightening uh, presentation. So my name is Sudhir and I'm a former Boeing 777 pilot uh, over a decade of flying who transitioned to software engineering um, after the pandemic. So I have a unique blend of hands-on aviation, airline flying experience, flying international routes, and I'm keen on identifying opportunities where my piloting background can be leveraged to develop space-based products, uh, digital software tools, decision support tools, or basically in innovations that also have a sustainability edge for this aerospace industry. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to draw on your decades of experience if, if you have any unique insights on what you would suggest how I could contribute. Uh, I, the, the quickest one uh, I would say right now is because you have so much experience in flying uh, aircraft, into, especially international routes. So you've seen how different companies, I mean, sorry, different governments and different systems work together to ensure safety uh, of both hardware and people themselves, that your experience in the knowledge of what the operations are, how you operate internationally, domestically, um, even with, uh, with Boeing, the, the manufacturer uh, of the vehicle itself, those are operational uh, information that a lot of people such as myself in the space industry, industry who has been building these things don't exactly have, right? And so this is where a lot of these companies have to partner with people with that kind of industry, with that kind of experience such as yourself to say, okay, I have a product, I want to use it in space, right? What is the ideal, not ideal, but what is the best way to say for a logistics standpoint, I wanna build a new transportation vehicle. What are the things that the pilots are gonna to have to worry about? Or what is the system gonna to have to worry about, right? In terms of what does the traffic control system look like, right? What are the new acronyms look like and all this kind of stuff. These are things that we hear from a top level, but we haven't experienced it in detail such as yourself. So these are like areas that you can easily insert yourself into and provide input in terms of, hey, for say, you know, space travel from a uh, transportation perspective, these are my ideas that I think that we would have to look at uh, further because it would actually work in a space environment as well as here in terrestrial environment. Thanks, Dennis, that's a great answer. Thank you very much. And uh, if you want, if you have more questions, you can always email me or get in contact with me as well. Okay, thanks, Dennis. Yeah, sure. if you see that being a, a big need for adapting the complex navigation procedures, like you mentioned, uh, communication protocols that, that pilots use to the space travel environment. Right. I think exactly. lessons can be learned. Thanks. Yep. All right. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. Given the limitations to the human body that you mentioned and our um, limitations to live in space now, um, and then you also mentioned a one billion, $1 billion economy by 2030, which industries do you think will be the, the emerging uh, most thriving by then? Most thriving by then? Um, yeah. 
based on the trajectory that we're heading right now, would probably be tourism, as long as you get the cost down enough for regular people to actually go. And when I'm saying getting the cost down, I mean down to a expensive vacation, not, hey, I got to spend half my lifetime mm. right, in order to do it. So if you get it down to, to that kind of a cost, I think it's tourism would be a very, very fast and quick and easy explosion in terms of growth. Because if you can go into, say, lower Earth orbit or, you know, just at the Carmen line for 5,000 bucks, I bet you millions of people will do it. Yeah. Right. And so that would be an explosion. If we're smart and we do it right and we get onto the moon from a mining and manufacturing perspective, I think that's probably another opportunity in itself. Um, one of the programs that I worked on was LCROSS, where we crashed our satellite into the moon to look for water, and we found a lot of water, right? We found enough water to cover the whole surface of the moon by a couple inches, mm -hmm. right? So if you extrapolate the data that we found, that's how much water is on the moon. So because you have those raw resources, you can manufacture your own water, you can split it, have hydrogen for fuel, so on and so forth, right? You can use the regolith as raw materials for building mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So there's opportunities from a mining and energy and heavy industry perspective that I think would be probably the next move. The highest terms in terms of return on investment will probably be the mining portion of it, as long as we're smart and the technology is, is there and we continue pushing forward and not just doing it because it's the political flavor of the decade, right? You have to actually keep doing it because it's something that we really need to do to expand ourselves as a species. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, Shafin online, he put some comment on, he can speak out. Shafin, do you want to speak out? You mentioned something about that, that was oh yeah i guess i guess that was the the earlier discussion about uh policing theft and space i don't i don't know a ton about this topic but i had suggested maybe the way we govern international waters um you know with uh you know ships either their cruise ships or you know other types of transportation could be an interesting kind of precedent example to look at like i said i i don't know a ton about the subject that was just a suggestion yeah. That's, that's a very good point of view. And just like you said right here, there's a lot of things that we've developed here on Earth that has great um, structure that we can expand on in space. So it's not that we have to build everything from ground zero because, you know, being an engineer, I don't like to build something from scratch. Again, redo the wheel if I don't have to, right? So we have to look at, hey, what can we, what do we have here today that we can modify and adapt up there so that it becomes faster and quicker. So if you're trying to adapt something and modify something, it's a lot faster than trying to come up with something new. So that's actually a very good point. The cheaper to ship D9 bulldozers to the moon or create a whole new thing. Right, that's correct. And so that's where they have to look at is the materials inside the equipment or the bulldozer adaptable in space. Right. right, because there's certain materials that we don't want to use in space, such as like zinc and tin, because hot, cold, and a vacuum environment causes it to whisker 
That's when you hit a circuit and then you short circuit. And so that's why we have to look at the things that we have here today. Is it adaptable or can we just change some parts and it's okay? Right. And so these are what the industries, the manufacturers will have to look at is can their products be adapted to a space environment? Right. If it's something as simple as, oh, I got to change out maybe 10% of the parts of this bulldozer. Great. Fantastic. It works. But if I have to change out 90%, I might as well design the new one. Works for five minutes until it gets clogged. That's right. correct. That's right. So that's what we have to look at. What we have today, can it be modified? If yes, fantastic. If no, then we have to come up with something. Because that, with that kind of thought process, that's how you're going to get companies and people more accepted into, into a space environment. Because as soon as they hear, oh, I have to spend billions of dollars to reinvent the wheel for everything, that's, that's a no-go for just about every corporation, right? But if you start to break it down, say, hey, I can use this, we modify it, it's only gonna be 15% of building something new. Let's talk about that, right? Your return on investment is gonna be higher versus building something new. So we should definitely look at how we do things. And, okay, so not, not to bag on Northrop Grumman because I was there for many, many years, but I'm sure a lot of other companies do the same thing where a lot of engineers, when a program first comes into play, everyone's like, I want to build everything brand new, everything state of the art. I can build it better, design it better, mm -hmm. whether it's a support equipment or a brand new piece of flight hardware, so on and so forth. So the cost just goes through the roof until it gets to a proposal and they're like, absolutely not. We'll never pass, right? And so this is where I tell people, hey, I have a half a million square foot warehouse in Carson Let's go down and see what equipment from past programs are there that's been abandoned in place that we can reuse. If it has been abandoned, let's get permission from the government or whatever program we doesn't use it anymore, and let's take it. Now you got a free piece of equipment that you have to modify versus brand new, right? And so that's why we have to change some of the, the perspective from an engineering world because we always love to build something new because that's mm -hmm. awesome. That's what we were <laughs> went to school for. <laughs> But those aren't tried and tested as well. You know, these bulldozers that are multiple iterations That's through correct. 100 years of pushing dirt around. That's correct. You know, that experience should come into play. That's absolutely correct. And so there's the experience with the equipment and the new environment. And when you marry those mm -hmm. three together and those three industries or those three experiences work together, you'll have a working product going forward. Mm -hmm. Right. If you just have one person who manufactured that doesn't have the operational experience, like like we we're talking about with with aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. Then we're going to design it with our best knowledge of whatever we read online, right? <laughs> and it's not necessarily going to be exactly how you know it operates in the real world, yeah. right? And part of the reason I do a lot of this outreach is because I see how like universities, and again, I'm not bagging universities. A lot of universities those have great people teaching. But a lot of students that come in don't have exactly a good realization of what the real industry looks like, right? Um, I'll give you an example. I've had students come in to tell me, oh, yeah, my senior project professor told us, don't worry about cost, don't worry about weight, don't worry about manufacturability. Like, we cut functionality because of those things. Right? So, so those things are actually important to us because we're here to make a profit, right? And so we want to adjust the expectations. So you need to have those three. 
people who have real world experience in whatever industry you're looking at, whatever product you're trying to modify, you need to have a manufacturer there. And of course, you need the people who have experience building that stuff and in the space environment. So you have those three together wow. who are open-minded and you're gonna have a fantastic product. I have I have a question. Uh, do, do, do you foresee the uh, do you foresee the uh, the development of uh, of uh, sort of uh, not necessarily uh, not quite space travel and and something beyond aviation uh, things such as uh, suborbital uh, transport? I mean the uh, the forty minute uh, London to Paris type uh, suborbital type of uh, <clears throat> trans <clears throat> uh, transport. Uh, uh -huh. yeah, the the Concorde uh, didn't seem to be financially uh, too viable. And I'm right. just curious, perhaps now with uh, uh, the ability of SpaceX, for example, to just so precisely land those boosters back and so forth, uh, if you yes. could maybe develop this kind of uh, sort of very high speed transport, uh, intercontinental probably be the, uh, the application here, uh, you know, uh, New York to Sydney, uh, New York to, to London, that sort of thing. And, and will, that, will that ever be actually financially, do you think, uh, uh, viable or? Uh, absolutely, I, I do. Because uh, let's let's take Starship for example. Starship has a multi-purpose, right? It can do what you're saying in terms of intercontinental travel in a fraction of the time, or it can actually go into deep space, right? And so, Starship from from a perspective is it has two different kind of roles, so that it could kind of spread out its operating costs. Because if it's not transporting people, it can transport cargo, right? Um, the reason, in my view, that the Concorde wasn't really viable is because the technology never evolved, right? It was built back in the 60s and whatnot, and it has never changed in, since, since its retirement, right? And so because its one purpose was to just take high net worth individuals from one spot to the next, there's only very few of those, right? And those really high net worth, they have their own transport. So then they don't really need the Concorde. So I, this is part of the maintenance and the evolving. If you just throw a product out there and say, oh, it's for this, and then just kind of let it go, it will eventually die and replace. If you have a little bit more forethought into um, products being multi-use, such as, for example, um, Starship, where yes, it can go into space, it can deliver passengers, it can deliver um, supplies. And when it comes back down, it can come back down wherever you want it to come back down, right? And so, yes, it does have dual use. And the more uses that you have for it, the more you can spread out and amortize the cost, you know, to, to other areas and or industries that you're supporting. So I absolutely believe that a lot of this stuff right here can, especially from a transportation perspective, can actually be used for, you know, specific just passenger travel. As long as we continue to evolve. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, yes, it did. Uh, I, I I tend to agree with you. Um, I'm, uh, I guess the uh, the the sort of. Uh, uh, the the, uh, the economics of scale are definitely uh, going to be necessary in order to uh, to make it affordable for for say the you know not necessarily maybe the average uh, passenger but maybe a little bit higher end but but not just quite as you as you said the uh, the extremely high end sort of uh, uh, 
privileged type of, uh, of, uh, of person that would be uh, traveling in, in such right. a, uh, such a system. But, uh, yeah, I, I just, I just don't know if any of that, uh, uh beyond starship, I mean, I, I realize that's multi-use, but if, perhaps maybe a more, uh, more dedicated systems just for this application, whether that would be feasible, uh, not necessarily something to the scale of the, the, uh, you know, as, as large as a starship. I mean, I don't know what kind of passenger loads that might be able to carry, but, but something in the order of more of a, uh, you know, medium scale sort of, uh, aircraft, uh, you know, maybe, a you know, a hundred people or something like that. Yeah. Or if something in, in that scale would be, uh, would be feasible. So, yeah. so we, it wouldn't need as much infrastructure as, for example, Starship. I mean, we, right. we, we all saw what that first launch looked like. And, and I just <laughs> kind of shudder to think, uh, as, you know, I, I live near, near, near some, uh, some airports and military bases. And, and just that alone is kind of a, uh, noise wise, uh, that that's kind of impacting impacts. Yeah. And so I'm just curious what, what something like Starship would, would require in order for, for that kind of, uh, infrastructure that would, that would uh, impact uh, surrounding, you know, populations and so forth, where where you might want this kind of transportation available, so that right. so that people would access it. So, I was just curious at the general topic whether any any perhaps uh, a thought had been given to to more a more dedicated system for, for those yes. kind of orbital type of transportation. Yes, there is. Um, we're gonna get a little bit uh, away from the space here, but let's talk about. It. So, I I did uh, hypersonic um, research for a little while. Uh, with NASA, um, and that was, you know, with its own free flying body, X-43A, uh, really Mach 10. How do we get to Mach 10 to increase our travel, right? Uh, reduce our travel uh, time from one location to the next. Um, there's a lot of research going on right now, and, you know, I'm, I'm working with uh, some startup companies, and I see some of the pitches that they have, and a lot of these um, new startups are looking at producing a quote unquote Concorde like passenger travel without the the um, negative effects of like the sonic, the sonic boom and so on and so forth and try to make it uh, economically viable um, from a cost perspective. Uh, with very little footprint in terms of changing the infrastructure, just like you were uh, mentioning there. So there are a lot of people out there right now, and this type of travel is almost kind of in the middle between air travel and space travel. And so it can really benefit from a technology of both to help that level of um, passenger transportation that, that you're mentioning. So. Uh, one thing I want to mention too, and you just jogged my mind, is that a lot of these companies and a lot of these industries can leverage off of each other, right? And we should be smart about learning from each other. What did you learn? What works? What doesn't work? And how can I apply it to my industry or to a new industry? And so this is a very good example is you have something that aircraft, but you have aircraft luxury and aircraft passenger travel standards. You have spacecraft speed. How do we marry the two together to get something that gets us from a passenger perspective from one location to the next faster? So there are definitely a lot of companies out there that are working on that kind of technology. Interesting to see when these spaceports start popping up, they're going to be in remote areas because space travel is very, very loud, right? Yes. And then people will start congregating around those yes. areas and building businesses, and then that will yes. draw people in. And then 
wealthy people will come and live there as yeah. well, and then they'll start complaining about the noise and uh, try to get the spaceport shut down. Yeah. Because so funny you said that. Um, so Virgin Galactic uh, opened up a spaceport in New Mexico. Got the name of the town in New Mexico. I actually looked at potentially working there, and when I saw the town, it was literally one street with like five buildings. I'm like, I'm out. I can't do it. Yeah. But you're right. That's exactly what you're saying. They built a specific spaceport for wealthy individuals to go on this experience. So that right there is probably one of the very first quote-unquote commercial spaceports. I think it might almost be the opposite where once people move there and they realize that that's what it is, they would be more accepting of it elsewhere because they visited there and they're like, oh, yeah, they hear a lot of booms. Yes. I visited there and I heard the booms and meh. Yes, that's thick windows or whatever yes. it is. And so <laughs> this is where also the government regulations have to come into play. So anybody down by John Wayne Airport, they realize that when you take off, you have to go at a steep angle mm -hmm. because you can't fly over the houses. It's too loud. So they want you to go up and really high. That's why LAX, you just go over the ocean, no problem. Cruise, take your time, right? And so those are the regulations that you're saying. If there's high noise environment, then we're going to have to look at how does that affect the people around them, right? Or the environment. Unless you have to build in building codes that say, hey, you're going to need this amount of noise abatement because that it's correct. in your mellow roofs or whatever. That is correct. So you just, yes. you, you sign a waiver that by living here, you just know there's going to be sonic booms every five minutes. That is correct. That is absolutely correct. So when I built the new uh, facility over at Northrop, that was definitely a lot of rules that the city has set for us that we have to meet, right? Mm. You can't pump out so much gas, you know, you have to you have to have all these filters, you know, the smell and, and because there's residential within so many yards of where you're at, you have to do this, not so much noise. And so we have to build in a lot of different um, containment systems, uh, environmental systems in order to meet the rules set by the city. What facility was that? Uh, M1, M2. Oh, so in the back, you have all this. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I redid M1. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, cool. yeah, M1, M2, all of the factory modernization and stuff. Were you responsible for the cubicles? Yes. So, oh. so, 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 so don't knock on. Wait, on the, on the second floor? Yes. No, that's oh, not me. Oh, okay. No, that was not me. Okay. That, I, I won't say which executive decided <laughs> that, but I was not supposed to touch any of that, and they were supposed to be as is. I built the cubicles in a classified day. Oh, okay. On, on, on the other side. Well, when we did the. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? When we did the. Uh, put in a new autoclave in the composite center in El Segundo, we couldn't get a permit for an emergency diesel generator in case the power went down. Yes. You know, and you got to be kidding me. You know, it's something that's used once or twice a year. You know, and, and it's not safe to have an autoclave without electrical power, you know. So, yes. yeah, so that was kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. Along these lines, just to interject for a minute, I, I've been working on um, um, suborbital boost glide uh, transportation, not for people, but for critical cargo and also ISR. And um, that's got a lot of potential and, and, it, and it, it doesn't... And like uh, um, Virgin Galactic, if you air launch it, you don't have the ground launch rocket noise. You know, you, that's up in 35,000, 40,000 feet somewhere. 
you know, it can be off away over the water or whatever. So that, that's interesting. Uh, putting people in, it's a little harder. If um, For a, a boost glide trajectory, it's tough to get the Gs less than five. You can, but it's you know, it's tricky. Yes. Uh, no. Yeah. I when when I did the X forty three, that was we we lifted up onto a B fifty two. We dropped it because we were strapped onto an, an orbital rocket, right? right. Boosted right. us up, and then we separated, and then the the glide of the vehicle itself took off with the scramjet. So you're right. It, it does. You will have a problem reducing the number of Gs, but. A lot of these technologies that we talked about today, and even just verbally, I haven't even talked about the military aspects of how they leverage all of this as well. A lot of this technology, like getting equipment and supplies from one place to the next within three hours, that's something that they absolutely want, right? Then that means- Well, one of the lessons learned from Afghanistan was the, and Iraq, was the cost of transporting diesel uh, to uh, the forward operating bases. You know, you just had convoys and convoys of tanker right. trucks, which are perfect targets for insurgents. You know? Correct, correct. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, yeah, there's, there's a certain, I, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago, overnight delivery was, everybody laughed. And now, you know, you get $10 items delivered overnight. That's correct. Uh, now, you know, a one hour delivery from Anchorage to uh, Taipei City can happen. Right. Um, and it might be something really important. Yeah. You know? I mean, imagine 15 years ago, overnight delivery. What? <laughs> yeah, people laugh. $100. Now it's 20 bucks, <laughs> give or take, depending on the size of your private package. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and things that are not uh, high value, you know, low cost items are delivered overnight. It's amazing. Yes. And when you when you work on these transportation logistics issues, um, what that does too is the ramification is maybe you don't need to have as many warehouses nearby, right? Because you can deliver it faster. Yeah. You take from a military perspective, no, have 300 military bases around the world. If you can get it from the U.S. to wherever anywhere in the world in 30 minutes, just ship it to the U.S. Well, it's the conveyor belt theory. Uh, the faster the conveyor belt goes, the lower the loading on it. That's correct. So you need less of everything if you go faster. That's correct. The whole point now is to how do you slow down? <laughs> yeah. All right, fantastic. That was a great talk. Any other questions? Yeah, Robert and James has questions. Robert, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, the challenge, we were talking about suborbital resupply. The challenge with that is I've got something that's basically on a ballistic trajectory coming at me. How do I know it's a package and not something, I'm not a warhead? <laughs> You're <laughs> well, uh, at least in my case, it's a space plane and it has nothing like a, a ballistic trajectory. It, it, it's surprising you put wings on a rocket and you really want to fly it. And so it doesn't look like, you know, we had that problem with rapid eye. We were using uh, surplus um, peacekeepers to deliver uh, uh, an ISR platform. To, and everybody said just what you said. Hey, this looks like a nuke coming in. Yeah. But um, you can make it where it doesn't look anything like a nuke. Yeah. And so, okay. so, so this is where you look at, you know, a lot of military satellites 
are monitoring. So if you know you are launching this thing from a known silo area, then yeah, you're going to set off big alarms everywhere. And just like you said, you can always do things where you know, hey, don't send it from someplace that is known to be you know have nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. You know, put it in a different kind of trajectory. You know, put sensors or beacons on it to say, hey, so on and so forth. That's not to say that you know it covers every uh, aspect of you know weapons delivery, but you know, kind of diverging off topic a little bit. But yes, there's many different ways that, that you can put stuff onto a transportation vehicle and have it not look like a weapons delivery system. There's also a little logic problem there. I mean, if you were doing a first strike nuclear attack, would you do it with one vehicle? You know, you, I don't know. Maybe if you were a terrorist. I'm, I'm not trying to belittle the... the the concern, but you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be. A, I don't think it'd be a single rocket in some something like that. That is a whole other question. Does anybody else have any other questions for me? I guess it's my turn. Oh, uh, basically, have you considered uh, the impact of an internal and external economies? Uh, what I'm thinking of is. Uh, a, a community on the moon meets 90% of its needs uh, through local resources, but then it has that last 10% that it has to import from the earth. And to do that, it has a product that it can sell to the earth, in which case it's very uh, motivated to make that uh, product economical. Yes, um, you're absolutely right. That's That's pretty much what these new... Uh, markets uh, and economy is going to be becoming when it crops up. Uh, who's not to say that you don't find some kind of mineral out there that is not found on Earth, right? And that's a new resource that could be shipped back to either Earth for processing or use or to on the moon or Mars or wherever. So there are definitely um, options there. Corporations who set up bases or manufacturing facilities either in Earth orbit or on the moon, planetary surface, and so on and so forth, they will be creating products to be self-sustainable, but they're also going to be creating items that they can use themselves in space and or ship back on Earth. So that's going to be the whole part of that's going to be one aspect of the whole kind of space economy and the new markets that's going to be cropping up everywhere. But that's a very good point. Any other questions? Just have a little, some more time. There's one one question in Q and A. You cannot use the microphone. So for Q set. So this is for Q set. Okay. Um, so from a CubeSat perspective, CubeSat's a little bit easier because there's a lot of training out there. Um, if you're in a university level, if you go to the San Luis Obispo uh, CubeSat uh, website, they have a lot of great information, a lot of great um, people there that can help you uh, to get into uh, what CubeSats do. Uh, from a software standpoint, um, software is going to be really dependent on what the mission is going to be. Um, if you want to get into software itself and, and into satellite systems, um, of course, you're going to have to understand how to write software and coding. 
Um, short of that, uh, getting into um, certain companies uh, like you know the traditional aerospace companies to help you develop the skill sets, um, even Raytheon or any supporting companies that develop um, test set software, if that's what you're interested in versus flight software. So you have to look at which ones you really want to do. And now there's companies out there that's branching off and not doing so much just test set software and software for flight software, but there's companies like, like Amazon, for example, you know, and there's a couple of other companies in, in Europe that are starting up where they're giving, they're providing services of ground station services for satellites. So you can actually work for these companies like Amazon and all these other startups who are providing ground station services and they will need software people to develop the software systems in order to operate the ground systems and communicate with satellites. So there's many different um, ways, as you can see right now, even companies like Amazon are trying to get into this, right? Right. They just launched their own set of, of CubeSats or you know, communication satellites. So. Everybody's expanding quickly. Uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, point out. For uh, uh, you, you mentioned earlier uh, the uh, the uh, problem of the uh, the uh, bandwidth limitation issue in terms of uh, radio communications, and I and and, and uh, uh, I'm I'm aware of the uh, this latest uh, NASA mission, the uh, the Psyche uh, mission that's uh, going to be going out to the uh, uh, asteroid near uh, Jupiter. Yes. That actually have on board a uh, a laser communication uh, uh, unit that yes. will be used for uh, uh, interplanetary communications. Yes. So uh, that th this might actually provide a uh, a solution to the uh, to the the uh, microwave and, and, and standard radio communication uh, uh, sort of bandwidth problem if, if it's successful. I, uh, I you know my my problem is with uh, Earth uh, communications is well what happens on a cloudy day and you really need to get that data up or down to the uh, to the uh, to the unit to the satellite right. so so it has its problems but I think it, it could certainly uh, reduce some of the uh, some of the um, impact to to the right. uh, to the bandwidth limitations so that might might, might be one possible solution yes to you're you're absolutely correct and this is where when you look at the whole entire system let's just take Psyche for example and if you have great a whole system of navigational beacons or communications arrays and so on and so forth, right? You can have Psyche beam that information to a communication array that's in orbit of Earth. And if you want to make sure that clouds and line of sight and all that kind of stuff doesn't interfere, then from that communication, it can go into regular transmission methods, right? That isn't affected by that. So there's many different ways that you can utilize this, right? So you have to look at what is the mission? What exactly you really want from this? And then you can cobble that cobble to kind of put together a system with multiple time technologies that works together into one system that uh, gives you the kind of reliability that you're looking for. But yeah, that's a very great point. Anything else? No more? I think that's it, Ken. Thank you, thank you. So that's a good job, Yeah, one thing is uh, we did prepare a uh, appreciated certificate for the faculty because we are going to Las Vegas. So I packed my car. No problem. So next time, next time. October 28th, yes. right? We'll present uh, it to you. 
No, yeah. November 4 is your presentation. Yes, but I'll be there at 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll give it. Okay. So, so, so really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. you. Wonderful talk. I thank you everybody for being here. So our next event, as I mentioned, is the uh, uh, October 28 in Lomita Library is the uh, company called uh, Guitar. They designed the robot, robot system. Yeah, it's a local company, and it's a company who got a NASA contract to do the orbit servicing for the International Space Station. Uh, they will do some simple demo. Uh, uh, their senior manager is going to give a talk. And uh, then November uh, November 4, as uh, Dennis will hear again, talking about uh, the digital frontier. Very ultra exciting. So the next event after Dennis' talk on November 4 will be our young professional networking event. It will be in the common space uh, brewery right next to SpaceX. So please join us. It's uh, November 14. November 14th. And uh, there is a, uh, we're just working on another event we haven't sent out yet, uh, which is also very interesting, is by a JPL uh, uh, chief scientist, is uh, Dr. Randy uh, Wesson, is going to, going to talk about the future of US robotic planetary exploration. Uh, right now, we planned it for the Long Beach downtown uh, main library. If you've been to downtown Long Beach, that's a very business area. So it's right next to convention center. So uh, so please join us. If any question, please let us know. So thank you, everybody online and in person here. So uh, have a wonderful day and weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay.